Welcome back to the University of Portsmouth's Air Power and International Security podcast. Today we have an episode on air power during the Falklands conflict of 1982 because tomorrow marks 40 years since Argentine forces surrendered at Port Stanley after what was a truly remarkable effort by Britain's armed forces to retake the islands down in the South Atlantic. So today I'm joined by my colleague Dr Ben Jones who will be talking to us about the challenges of employing air power in the maritime environment 8,000 miles away and why Britain was able to use air power much more successfully than Argentina and what sort of impact this had on the outcome of the conflict. Thank you for joining me today Ben. Before we start talking about air power specifically it's worth adding a little bit of context surrounding the outbreak of war. So what motivated Galtieri, the head of the ruling junta, the military junta, to take the Falklands Islands in the first place? This is a very interesting subject because the, the war itself was not expected by almost anybody, certainly in the United Kingdom. This junta came to power in December 1981, so the military had been in charge in Argentina since 1976, but this was a new uh, leadership of the junta. Galtieri and Anaya, Anaya being the head of the Navy and the hardliner, uh, the Hawk, um, they'd known each other for a long time, and effectively Admiral Anaya said he would support Galtieri for the leadership on the understanding that in the short to medium term uh, they retook the Falklands. In terms of the internal pressures on the Junta to do this, uh, external to, to those issues, um, the junta had ruthlessly repressed its opponents uh, since 1976, so up to 30,000 of their opponents disappeared, and this issue of the disappeared it dominated politics and was a very important um, factor for decades, as you would expect. And this became, of course, for the junta, a big problem. So three days prior to the invasion, there was the largest ever protest in Buenos Aires in the main square against the Junta's rule. In addition to that, uh, there of course was the economic uh, recession, as with many countries in, 19, in 1981, which was also fueling discontent. Okay, so there was a clear movement within Argentina to take the islands, led predominantly by senior military figures, but did they actually have a strategy for defending the Falklands after they had captured them? And did this involve air power? As I've mentioned, Galtieri and Anaya, they were really effectively the leadership. So there was also Lamidoza, who was the head of the Air Force. He was effectively frozen out of the planning for the invasion. The Army and the Navy wanted the kudos uh, for retaking the Malvinas, as of course the Argentines knew them. And they didn't involve the Air Force in this at all. So, in fact, on the day they, they decided to invade, um, which was the 26th of March, was really the first that the Air Force knew. And the Air Force were just told uh, that this, they weren't needed for the invasion. So the Air Force was frozen out of the planning for it. Um, the other point which you raise is then what plan did they have to defend them? They simply did not think that this would be required. All of the signals for the British uh, in, terms of the, you know, in terms of British policy towards the Falklands uh, was that they were not interested in it. They would not invest in its defence. 
So its regular defence was 35 Royal Marines with no air cover, with no heavy weapons, the occasional ice patrol ship. In the late 1970s, the British Ministry of Defence and Foreign Office were even arguing over who would pay for new rifles for the Falkland Islands Defence Force to replace those which, um, which they'd had since the First World War. There was no interest at all in it. Uh, and indeed, the Foreign Office had even put to the Falkland Islands this idea of a leaseback arrangement, which would for a time involve the dual sovereignty between Britain and Argentina. Obviously, when the Foreign Office sent, as you often do, the junior Foreign Office Minister to Port Stanley with these proposals, he was basically run out of town. There was no real focus by Britain on the Falklands. Their, their utility as a coaling station and somewhere the undersea telegraph came ashore had obviously long since gone. Um, they had no economic value. They were 8,000 miles away, so there was just effectively a token presence. So probably no real surprise that Galtieri underestimated Britain's commitment to the islands. But once it's clear that Britain will launch a task force to retake the territory, what difficulties stood in their way? It stood in Britain's way. There was obviously no plan to retake them. Many senior military officers and experts both in the United Kingdom Armed Forces and around the world, thought that to retake the Falklands 8,000 miles away with the capabilities which Britain could project was pretty much impossible. Um, so there, there, there is no plan. But often plans and doctrine are not the only thing that matter. And what often that matter are personalities. And here in the, in the gloom in London, once it was realised that the Argentine fleet was sailing, intelligence indicated, towards the Falklands, and they were going to invade. Um, within the gloom of the paper that was prepared for the Prime Minister at the time, um, there was, it was, this was seen by Henry Leach, who was the first sea lord, the head of the Royal Navy. Um, he took a different view to this paper, that effectively there was nothing that could be done, and there certainly was nothing that could be done, even with day's notice, to prevent uh, the invasion, given had no plans to, to reinforce the Falcons. Um, but that, in fact, a task force could be sent. Um, and this was advice. He went along to the Prime Minister's office without a, unannounced, and effectively said, Prime Minister, that we can retake them. This will be a risky endeavour, but this could be done. In terms of the challenges, though, I mean, well, as I say, it is, it is logistic challenges about what forces you can project. So Britain's Army, Navy and Air Force was considerable, but, for example, in the Air Force, unless it could take off from um, one of the small carriers the British possessed, it could not be employed. So the actual amount of air power that could be projected was limited, and indeed, Many of the helicopters and other reinforcements had to go on converted merchant ships because Britain only possessed two aircraft carriers. Tactical aircraft had to either fly from a small aircraft carrier or another platform. Um, for, anything, for anything larger, um, they could get there, but of course your nearest airbase is 4,000 miles away on Ascension Island. Um, and, and for the Navy, the nearest dockyard is Gibraltar which is 6,000 miles, so any ships which are damaged um, 
require repair, which can't be done at sea, then they're, then they're going to have to go to Gibraltar or back to the United Kingdom. In terms of the troop numbers, uh, obviously the ships that the Royal Navy and Fleet Auxiliary had were only limit, were very limited in terms of their troop carrying capacity. When you're talking about sending effectively two brigades uh, to the Falklands, so you then have what was called stuffed ships taken up from the trade, which was cruise liners, North Sea ferries to do that. You need lots of tankers um, to actually refuel the ships and keep them in and keep them there in the South Atlantic. And the Navy doesn't have, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary doesn't have anywhere near the capacity which would be required. So it's a huge logistical feat just to project force down in the South Atlantic. But were there any other constraining factors here? Would it be fair to say that the three services were prepared primarily to fight the Cold War? And had this deprived them of an ability to fight joint operations of this type? Was there a plan for this sort of campaign? Or was this something that was concocted somewhere in the Mid-Atlantic? In terms of all the British services, they were clearly prepared for the Cold War. This is what they were trained, this is what they were been training to do. Um, Britain did not have an expeditionary policy outside of anything required for the Cold War, from Norway to the Mediterranean, in 1982. It had really had none of this since Britain withdrew from east of the Suez Canal. So it was dominated by, there really was, I think, only NATO doctrine at that time. The individual British services did not have their own. And all the thinking, therefore, is on the defence of the United Kingdom, the defence of Western Europe, and the defence of Britain's sea lanes. Their training and equipment was primarily, indeed largely, not directed to such an expeditionary operation. Of course, there are those serving in the armed forces who, who had served in there for quite a while, who did have experience um, of such operations. If we get down into the detail of sort of how this campaign was going to pan out, for example, when you got to the Falklands, where you were going to land, given this was going to be necessary if the Argentines did not withdraw, uh, these things were planned during the operation. Um, a key thing as well, of course, having after kind of the shock of the invasion, um, and a key reason, I think, why Mrs Thatcher was then willing to consider the military option, was that she was assured that British forces could move quickly in terms of sailing from the United Kingdom um, with maximum publicity, uh, in the case of the aircraft carriers, on the 5th of April 1982, only three days after the invasion. So there was a clear, uh, a clear signal that something was, was happening and that Britain was serious about, uh, about this and where the Argentines, of course, they wouldn't, in the hope that the Argentines would withdraw. Um, but many of these ships, especially amphibious ships which sailed initially, could have sailed three weeks later and got there for the landing. So they effectively restowed for a proper amphibious assault at Ascension Island. But there's a political imperative to get them on the move on the hope that the Argentines will realise that the, the no response, which they had assumed, is completely incorrect. So after the task force had arrived in the South Atlantic, there's an initial action on South Georgia, which is roughly a thousand miles from the Falklands, 
And after that, the RAF strike the airfield at Port Stanley, which is a tremendous accomplishment. But how were these raids even allowed to happen? And what sort of impact do these strikes have? So when we say the task force approaches the Falklands um, just before the 1st of May, when the first raids take place and the British first efforts by the British are made to retake them, um, what we are talking about here is the carrier battle group. The amphibious forces are 4,000 miles away. So this is the beginning of the first preparatory phase of retaking, which was to hopefully draw out the Argentine Navy and begin an attrition exercise on them. And this, of course, of course, is three weeks before the assault, the amphibious assault at San Carlos uh, actually takes place. So a lot of the measures on this day, which from the Argentine reaction on the 1st of May, were quite successful, um, if not dangerous for the British, and effectively drawing out elements of the Argentine Air Force. But this was the objective. In terms of the, the first of what were the, the, a number of Black Book missions, as they were called, in the Royal Air Force, to attack the runway at Port Stanley initially, and later to attempt to use American strike anti-radar missiles against the Westinghouse radar at Port Stanley. It's often forgotten that the Navy were extremely keen on this because the problem is they did not know for certain that the runway at Port Stanley had not been extended, which would have meant that Argentine fast jet attack aircraft could use it. The choice of the Vulcan, and this is one of the in, obviously, there are a number of challenges here. One is obviously logistics, getting an aircraft 4,000 miles there and back, and the large numbers of tankers required. The Vulcan itself is near to retirement shortly before the war breaks out, and the air-to-air refueling equipment doesn't work. It used to, but this had to be, this had to be refitted and tested uh, in, the, in the few weeks before the raid. But it is the only platform that British possess which could hit the airfield with a munition at sufficient velocity to cause a serious crater on the runway. The Harrier pilot, obviously, not very pleased that the Argentine air defences were then fully alert because someone had just dropped 21 bombs across the airfield at four o'clock in the morning. It's a very good example of, to a degree, improvisation, uh, pieces of kit which could do this, but there haven't been the thinking from your previous point about doing it before this, but making the most of their limited resources. This is a platform which could get to the Falklands and conduct this raid, and it was carried out on the 1st of May faultlessly, which meant, which was a major objective, that Argentine fast attack aircraft could not use the runway. Later that same day, after the initial Black Buck raid, the Argentines responded by launching a series of attacks of their own. And this saw the Daggers evade Royal Naval defences and Mirage 3 aircraft engage the Sea Harrier. So what did these initial skirmishes reveal to, to both sides? So there was, as the British, as it were, hoped to draw out the Argentine Air Force, um, a widespread response. And to try and almost guarantee this response, not only did obviously the Vulcan attack the runway, the Sea Harriers attack targets... Um, at Port Stanley Airfield and also the airfield at, at Goose Green uh, but also 
three Royal Navy ships uh, within sight of the runway undertook a naval gunfire bombardment. And effectively, they were going to stay there, I think, until the Argentines attacked them. And as you say, they discovered that they were rather vulnerable, given they had limited surface-to-air missile capability um, to Argentine attack. And indeed, there was a narrow miss on one of those ships, and they made a fairly hasty withdrawal um, under cover of smoke, as you do. The Argentines, of course, assumed, therefore, that one of the ships had been badly damaged. Britain only has, at the time, maximum of 20 sea harriers available, so air cover is going to be limited. In terms of, you mentioned the use of the Mirage, so this is their supersonic fighter aircraft. Um, and there were two engagements between, series of two engagements, on the 1st of May between the Sea Harriers and the Mirage. Now, of course, the Mirage is supersonic. The Sea Harrier is very much not. Uh, but the Sea Harrier therefore operates better at medium or low altitude. As with a supersonic fighter, the Mirage 3 operates far better at higher altitude. Obviously, the Sea Harriers did not engage the Mirage 3 at an altitude which would be at a disadvantage to them. In the second engagement, uh, one Sea Harrier shot down a Mirage and another Mirage was damaged. It attempted in some desperation to land at Port Stanley and the Argentine aircraft gunners, whose recognition wasn't great, shot it down. And again, this is a... You can see this running through the conflict in terms of once the fighting begins, the lack of risks that they're willing to take. Having seen maybe in one engagement the Mirages, the Sea Harrier, they order the other Mirages not to engage them. So the Mirages do fly over the Falklands on other missions later in the conflict, but this is largely as maybe a decoy mission to draw the Sea Harriers away from any Argentine attack aircraft. But effectively, after the 1st of May, any missions by attack aircraft from the mainland are unescorted. They certainly made a decision here about the Mirage not to risk, and they only had one squadron of Mirage 3s, not to risk their, that key air defence asset later in the conflict. Can you perhaps tell us a bit more about the importance of the maritime dimension here? Shortly before the first Black Book raid, the naval task force had entered the total exclusion zone around the Falklands Islands, which meant that any vessel inside this area were liable to attack. Now, Admiral Woodward had positioned his carrier battle group inside this zone, but Admiral Anaya had organised his available ships into three task groups and proceeded to encircle Admiral Woodward. What did the British do next, and how significant was this to the outcome of the entire conflict? In terms of the exclusion zones, and there are two important things to remember. The first is that on the 23rd of April, the British warned Argentina that any approach by any Argentine vessel, aircraft, will encounter the appropriate response. Outside of Argentine, for example, for their Navy, territorial waters of Argentina. So if you were inside the exclusion zone, they could really expect to be attacked, but just because they were outside it uh, did not preclude that they would be attacked. On the 30th of April, um, 
British forces were informed that all forces were permitted to attack the Vincentio de Mayo outside of Argentine territorial waters, not just in the exclusion zone, because quite clearly the Vincentio de Mayo could sit outside the exclusion zone and launch an airstrike into it. So the British were critically aware of the potential vulnerability to an Argentine naval attack, uh, predominantly the Skyhawks um, from the Vincentio de Mayo. Uh, there was also another aspect, of course, to this, which the Argentines planned to coordinate with such an attack on the 2nd of May 1982, and that is the Super Atendard maritime attack aircraft carrying the Exocet missile. And they planned on the 2nd of May to coordinate these attacks. Extraordinarily, when we came to the morning of the 2nd of May, there was not sufficient wind in the South Atlantic, a very calm day, for the Argentines to launch their Skyhawks from the carrier, which is going to require natural wind over the deck in addition to the speed that the Vincentio de Mayo could produce. In addition, on that day, the Exocet attack had to be aborted because of a failure of air-to-air refuelling. So effectively, the Argentine naval forces sort of going to a holding pattern um, to conduct an attack on another day, which, because of the sinking of the General Belgrano, did not happen. Given that the Belgrano was of huge significance to the Argentine Navy, how was it so easily sunk? And crucially, what sort of impact did its loss have? As we've talked about, the Belgrano was in one of three task groups aiming at a sort of a pincer movement. She herself was a relatively old ship, uh, as the USS Phoenix. Um, there's footage of her escaping from Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941, and therefore, of course, transferred to the Argentine Navy uh, after the Second World War. On the 2nd of April 1982, the only British submarine in contact with any of the Argentine task groups is the Conqueror, which is in contact with the Belgrano group of the Belgrano and uh, two escorts. She is outside the exclusion zone. So effectively, Admiral Woodward asked for permission to use the Conqueror to attack the Belgrano group. The war cabinet is assembled and they agree, given the perceived threat, they are not aware you know, the issues the Argentines have had on the 2nd of April in terms of the weather. The Argentine fleet is still at sea, uh, threatening the task force, which has limited defence capabilities to strike. Uh, the Belgrano is moving at 10 knots. She is not zigzagging, given it's clear after the 1st of May that the conflict really has begun. Her watertight doors are open. She is not at action stations. Um, she was struck by two Mark 8 torpedoes. Uh, the more modern torpedoes the Conqueror had were not felt to be entirely reliable and therefore Mark 8s were used. So in some ways this was a fair fight. The Mark 8 had been in service with the Royal Navy since the 1930s. So it was an old torpedo but entirely reliable. One of the Mark 8s blew off the bow of 
with the watertight bulkheads behind them, behind held. So the bow effectively just overhung nothing. So effectively one torpedo, which hit amidships, hit uh, and sank in 40 minutes uh, a large cruiser. A number of American cruisers were hit by Japanese torpedoes, so similar to type in the Second World War, and the Japanese long lance torpedo in the Second World War was far superior to the Mark 8 the Royal Navy used in 1982. Uh, none of those ships sank from one torpedo hit. The blame for this, and um, effectively then the enormous casualty list, uh, 323 Argentine sailors, almost one third of the crew were killed when the Belgrano was sunk, uh, is to blame for, therefore, Argentine naval incompetence. The fact that they had all the watertight doors open, there was an electricity failure, um, all the lights went out. A ship of that size, hit by one torpedo, of that, of that nature, should not have sunk. The ship may have been knocked out and disabled, but it should not have sunk. It certainly should not have sunk in 40 minutes. But of course, the strategic significance here was that having lost their second largest vessel um, with very heavy loss of life, was that the entire Argentine surface fleet, including critically, of course, the Vincentio de Mayo, the aircraft carrier, were ordered back to port and did not leave Argentine territorial waters for the remainder of the conflict. And it meant that the pilot of the Skyhawks from the Vincentio de Mayo did not have the advantage of flying from relatively close to the task force. They also had to fly from the mainland Argentina. So with the withdrawal of the Argentine Navy, it becomes an air or a maritime air contest. What made the Sea Harrier so much more effective in this context than anything Argentina could muster? Because am I right in thinking that the Royal Navy didn't even want the Sea Harrier initially? They wanted the F-4 Phantom that could be catapulted off their carriers. So what made the Sea Harrier so special? And before we deal with the aircraft itself, we have to remember that many of the pilots who flew them had thousands of hours of maritime experience flying the F-4 Phantom and flying the Blackburn Buccaneer, the naval strike aircraft which accompanied the Phantom on the Ark Royal to the late 1970s. When we talk about the perceived advantage they had, this was a fighter aircraft engaging ground attack or ship attack aircraft, which were unescorted by Argentine fighters. And therefore there was little threat to them. In addition to them having, you know, the most advanced surface to air missile in, in the Western kind of inventory um, at that time. Now, although the Sea Harrier often gets a lot of the credit for winning this air war, was it more that the Sidewinder was just so much better than any weapon that Argentina had? Well, the Sidewinder did obviously give them an advantage that they were more likely to hit the target. Um, also, we have to remember when most of the attacks take place. And so most of the air-to-air -air engagements actually take place. They don't take place when you would want them to in any, in any doctrine manual, which would be before they have carried out the attack. 
the large number of these attacks, the large number of the successful engagements occur um, after the Argentines have dropped their bombs. So, for example, on the 8th of June, there is the Argentine air attack on St. Galahad, um, which killed 50 Welsh guards and the Sir Tristram. Uh, three of those four aircraft are shot down by the combat air patrol shortly afterwards. The big gap in capability, uh, which makes things very dangerous for the task force and causes many of the losses, is this lack of airborne early warning, that you are unable to effectively to project your combat air patrol forward um, on routes which the Argentine aircraft are likely to take and then intercept them at that point. This is especially pertinent with the Exocet, which of course you need to engage the aircraft before it actually gets anywhere near to actually launching the missile. But without airborne early warning, that was actually very difficult to do. So once the Argentine planes were in sight and could be detected by, say, the radars maybe of the Harriers themselves, then the fighter direction was outstanding in terms of vectoring the combat air patrol onto the Argentine aircraft. As I say, with no consolation, however, to many of those on the ships, that these aircraft were largely shot down after they had conducted their bombing runs. How long is this maritime air contest? Well, the air campaign continues throughout the war. Um, the British plan to conduct this attrition exercise against the Argentine Air Force only has limited success. In terms of, I suppose the key moment, of course, is the landing in terms of the, the Argentine air power. So you don't see such a huge Argentine effort from the 1st of May, really, until, of course, the key moment, which is the 21st of May um, and, the following, and, and the following few days. So between the 21st, really, and the 25th of May, this really probably is the key moment of the war. Um, the British have achieved surprise on the 21st of May to get their landing forces ashore. But to give you an example, between the 21st and 25th of May, the Argentines lose 19, 19 attack aircraft, which are shot, by, shot down by the British. 14 of those 19 are shot down by the Sea Harrier. Partly because of the losses they suffer in this period, there is less of an Argentine air effort. Would you say that the British had air superiority before they launched the amphibious landings at San Carlos? Maybe air superiority, certainly nothing more than that. Um, they were completely aware that they were trying to defend this task force with only seven, by that stage, only 17 you know, fixed-wing fighter aircraft, Sea Harriers, with a lack of airborne early warning. Um, clearly a very risky enterprise. The choice of San Carlos uh, arises because it has good beaches. Most of the most of the troops will have to will have to land across the beaches. There are only 14 medium helicopters to support all elements of the landings, including the rapier air defense missile battery. And there is, there is therefore cover or limited cover within San Carlos water for the key uh, amphibious and other cruise liners, etc., ships used in, in, in that assault. They suffer, though, 
serious losses over that period. Uh, I mean, HMS Arden, which is at the south end of Falkland Sound, and she's one of those warships which is directly positioned, um, as far as the British are concerned, that hopefully the Argentines will attack her and see her first, rather than any of the amphibious ships. And she's hit by nine bombs, all of which exploded on the 21st of May uh, in these attacks and, and, and sinks um, and sinks that evening. So it is a very risky amphibious assault. Given that it's so difficult to launch an amphibious assault, any amphibious assault in any situation, why weren't Argentina better at stopping it? So in terms of the, the Argentine response, it is really only air. We see very little, if any, jointery between the Argentine armed forces during the conflict. Knowing that the British had landed, clearly one other response is to helicopter troops from Port Stanley. The Argentines did have a number of helicopters, including, uh, including Chinooks, including two Chinooks, which they could do. They clearly, and probably rightly, did not think that the quality and the quality of their troops, many of their troops, and their leadership was up to engaging the British forces in such a way. There is also, of course, as we're aware, the complete lack of any response from the Argentine Navy. They don't try to intercede with the landings in any way. The fact that they had not mined um, Falkland Sound, um, which surely, if there was a possibility of a British landing, a few mines here would have created massive problems uh, for the British. And indeed, they did send a Type 21 frigate uh, through Falkland Sound uh, prior to the landings with an order to zigzag uh, in the entrance, the northern entrance, which is where the task for the, the amphibious ships would approach in case there were any mines, because Britain did not initially send any mine sweepers. And there was a Type 21 frigate uh, in, in the north of Falkland Sound to pick up survivors. As Admiral Woodward said, this is Victoria Cross material, only if it all goes wrong. I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be a sailor on that ship. It sounds like a risky mission, to say the least. Now, after the beachhead had been established at San Carlos, the plan was to capture Darwin and Goose Green. But why was that the plan? Because if you look at a map of the Falklands Islands, both of these locations, well, they're obviously very close together, but these targets are directly south of San Carlos and nowhere near Stanley on the other side of the island. And surely everyone knows that Stanley is the primary target, and once you've captured it, you basically control the islands. So why divert your forces in this way? The reason for the Goose Green Raid is largely political. It is going to take time, especially with limited logistics, uh, you know, transport helicopters, to get forces for San Carlos to Stanley. They'd lost between the 21st and the 25th of May, including the Atlantic conveyor, the, the transport ship, four British ships were lost, and another four warships and three Royal Fleet Auxiliary ships were damaged to some degree by unexploded Argentine bombs uh, and, and cannon fire. Of course, the big difference here is the distance compared with the attacks which take place uh, in, Ju in June, uh, is the distance the British forces, the, the parachute battalion has to cover and the number of defence lines, etc., and the resistance that the Argentines put up, with the result that the night attack is not sufficient, and this goes into the whole of the next day, 
uh, when they don't have the benefit, obviously, of their night fighting experience uh, to exploit against the Argentines. And the Argentines on the airfield use their anti-aircraft guns in the time-honoured way, horizontally, uh, against the British infantry. I think there were 18 of the parachute regiment who, who died in the, in, in the attack to capture Goose Green. And I think Admiral Lewin, the chief of the defence staff, was quite clear in his reasoning that this compared with over a thousand Argentine prisoners. You could see it as a distraction, um, but it was one that was felt in London uh, took to be necessary. And so how quickly between British success at Goose Green did Stanley actually fall? So the Battle of Goose Green, I think, was the 28th and 29th of May. The first series of attacks uh, on the positions around Stanley did not happen until the 11th of June. So it's two weeks, so three weeks after the landings, before the British forces are in position to then conduct what turned out, of course, to be the key attacks on the Argentine forces around Stanley. There were only 14 medium helicopters to begin with, uh, to support the landing. Therefore, most of the troops, uh, the parachute battalions and the Royal Marines, had to walk 50 miles in the winter um, with boots which leaked. The other method, of course, by which the British tried to speed up the move of their troops to Stanley as much as possible um, was a series of, of amphibious movements um, say of guards, guards battalions to Stanley, both by um, landing craft and then fatefully on the, uh, the the last such planned move on the 8th of June, so three days before the first wave of these assaults, uh, the Welsh guards on the Sir um to Bluff Cove. By this point, the Sea Harriers have been reinforced by GR3 Harriers supplied by the RAF. What were these aircraft doing during this phase? Were they still focused on defensive air operations or had their priority shifted to support the land campaign? So largely the Sea Harriers continued in their air defence role. The threat had not, as was demonstrated on the 14th on the 8th of June, um, had, had not gone away. And the role of close air support obviously transferred to one squadron of the Royal Air Force. Um, welcome as far as the Navy concerned because these aircraft again had the pilot with the training uh, to, to undertake this. So the, the Navy really doesn't have the resources to undertake I guess a close air support missions and indeed that becomes the role of the Royal Air Force including in one of the attacks on Port Stanley the first use of a guided bomb um, uh, which missed I believe these kits were brought over, fitted to the Harrier, um, to enable them to try to obviously play a greater role in the in the attacks. And they did conduct attacks, softening up Argentine positions uh, prior to the attacks around Port Stanley. To reflect a little on the campaign as a whole, then, what can be said about the effectiveness of integration between the three services? There are obviously personality clashes, problems with uh, communications as you may expect, and to some degree, obviously, a simple lack of resources. For example, only having 
warrant Chinook available to ferry troops around East Falkland. In general, the British do, I think, as well as they could have done in, in all respects, despite inter-service inter rivalry, they use their resources, their limited resources, to kind of, to, to, in a fluid situation, uh, to, to really, I think, the maximum effect, given the difficulty and the scale of the task, um, the British use the limited resources, the Harriers, number one squadron, which land on an aircraft carrier for the very first time, many of those pilots, on HMS Hermes in the South Atlantic. Um, the fact that, obviously, it was planned that they would be based in a, in a, in a sort of rudimentary airstrip ashore at San Carlos. All of the equipment for that was in the Atlantic conveyor and ended at the bottom of the South Atlantic. So there's much improvisation required overall. They do, given the scale of the task, they do as well as they could have done. You've so far painted a detailed picture, a very detailed picture of British effectiveness. But what about Argentina? We hear so much about Argentine pilots who were these supposedly brave, plucky fellows who were simply let down by their out-of-date equipment and poor military strategy. Is there any truth to this? I think in, in terms of the performance then uh, of the Argentine Air Force, they were, and therefore the pilots, were at a number of inherent disadvantages. Uh, it had been decided in 1969 there would be a clear demarcation of the use of Argentine air power between effectively the, the land over, over land and the maritime component. And the Argentine Navy, which had a relatively small air component, was responsible for the maritime environment with its Skyhawks, with then, in this period, the Super A-10 Dard, um, or, for example, their Neptune maritime patrol aircraft. But this, of course, was a relatively small component of their air power as a whole and would not be sufficient to engage the forces which Britain sent in 1982. And therefore, with only a month's notice, pilots of the Argentine Air Force are going to have to are going to have to practice um, anti-ship attacks. And when we say a month's notice, this is not a month before the invasion, because the Argentine Air Force were just informed of the invasion, but were told they were not required. This was once it was apparent there was going to be a British response. So pretty much in the month before the, the shooting war, say, begins or begins again uh, on the 1st of May. They had obviously planned in, in, in recent times, if there was a war, this would like to be, say, against targets in, in, in Chile. This doesn't involve flying over 100 miles of sea uh, to find them, or indeed then to conduct attacks on moving ships um, at the end of this. So the amount of training they had was not what you would want, uh, maybe especially for a conflict which you initiated. The fact that the Argentine Air Force had not practiced such attacks for no fault of their own, as much as they may have done with more warning and proper planning and a clearer strategy, uh, meant that they attacked in penny packets in relatively small numbers, um, rather in the large, which to some degree, and I would only say to some degree, um, the British defences, the limited air defences the British had, uh, could deal with, rather than larger, more coordinated attacks, 
which have overwhelmed the British defences. It's clear that in many cases the pilots hit the wrong targets. Now what I mean by that is they, they hit warships such as the Ardent, which were placed there to be viewed first by any Argentine pilots. Obviously the carriers being further back and therefore better protected for this. So there's a number of issues here, but obviously we now see the huge problem of the Argentines believing there will be no British response and then having to scramble to catch up. Okay, Ben, you'll be really pleased to hear that this is my final question. And I think it's an important one. What lessons can we learn from the Falklands conflict? Because if we look at more recent conflicts, British forces have become accustomed to operating in environments in which control of the air is pretty much theirs by default. Are there any lessons that we can learn from this example about operating in an environment where you have to continually contest control of the air? In a conflict like this, where you have air superiority at best, but there is no chance of gaining for the British air supremacy, I think it makes it much more interesting to study. You do then see, obviously, the need to continually try and maintain the limited degree of control of the air which you have. And it then also forces you to make those maybe difficult choices. Where do you have control of the air? Well, critically, you need to have it over the task force because if the aircraft carriers are hit and you don't have even just one of those available, one is not going to be enough to prosecute the operation or will result in even greater risk than you're talking about. You then transfer that to the 21st of May. You're then, prior you're then splitting your air defence units between the task force and then very much San Carlos. West Fault, for example, you can pretty much ignore. Uh, or you, know, you don't need to have it over the, whole, over the whole battle space. You have to prioritise, as is in the doctrine, about winning control of the air, that you have it in certain areas. I think there are a couple of other key things here. When we discuss the Falklands, this is a war of expendability. I don't think we think of certain assets now uh, maybe as being maybe more expendable than others. I mean, Admiral Lewin, the Chief of Defence Staff, warns the War Cabinet that this ca operation can be done, but that Britain might lose six ships, which is how many were lost. And in terms of the losses here, these, these, are, would not be, these are way in excess in terms of the numbers of servicemen killed in the period of time than with anything we've seen recently in United King, in the United Kingdom's uh, engagements. We're talking here about 255 servicemen who were killed in six weeks. So it's a very risky enterprise. Maritime forces are vulnerable to air power, given that, as we've discussed, the Argentine Air Force was not really properly configured or indeed maybe had the optimal training for such operations. But we have to remember Maybe one of the key weaknesses, certainly in control of the air that the British had, was they had no airborne early warning. Uh, the Royal Navy had had this from the, the mid-1950s until the withdrawal of HMS Ark Royal um, in 1978. If we're looking at control of the air in a maritime sense, the most important layer 
are your fighter aircraft, which are directed by your airborne early warning platforms. And the fact that you don't have them makes, therefore, the task force far more vulnerable than it otherwise would have been. Excellent stuff there from Ben. Hopefully he has answered many of your questions about air power in the Falklands conflict. Next up is Dr Matthew Harries discussing the UK's nuclear policy. With the integrated review setting a completely new course for the UK's nuclear deterrent, I thought it was well worth asking some very important questions really about why the UK is now seemingly reversing two decades of downsizing its nuclear arsenal. So do listen out for that. And don't forget, we've still got some excellent episodes coming out soon, including ones on artificial intelligence and autonomous weapons, air power in the Six-Day War, the RAF's photo reconnaissance unit during the Second World War, and many more. See you next time.